You're listening to Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. Green Dreamer is a community-powered, interdependent show made possible by listeners like you, and you can support our work by sharing your favorite episodes and making a donation at patreon.com slash greendreamer. I'm your host, Kamea Shane, and today we're speaking with Dr. Tyson Yankaporta. And people would say, well, what's it? What's an indigenous wedding? What do you uh, got like uh, emu feather veil? Have you got like a, I don't know, a bush tucker wedding cake? You know, is the bride going to like, is the father going to give her away and then throw a boomerang or what's what's indigenous about it? And it's it's none of those things. It's in understanding the way systems work and the way relationships work and <laughs> understanding the way you have to build the structures of anything that you want to be sustainable over deep time. Dr. Yanka Porta is an academic, an arts critic, and a researcher who is a member of the Apalich clan in far north Queensland. He carves traditional tools and weapons, and also works as a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne. He is the author of Sand Talk, which has been described as a sort of reverse anthropology where, instead of using the Western lens to study and understand non-Western cultures, he uses an Aboriginal lens to look at Western civilization and its varied crises. And we begin here with Tyson giving us a glimpse into his background. So academically, you know, I mean, I've never been particularly a good scholar or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm not publishing in the massively high impact journals or, or anything like this. Uh, I don't know. I got I got my doctorate about 12 years ago, and I'm still only at about lecturer level in the university <laughs> system. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of not a professor or anything like this. So, you know, I guess my background is sort of always just on the edges of things and um, somebody who's doing interesting things, but not because he's particularly interesting. It's probably more of a just a peculiar mix of pathologies that sort of happens to throw up interesting things in some contexts <laughs> with some <laughs> subject matters. And I don't know, I never really had words for what that was until I sort of discovered complexity theory. As soon as I saw complexity theory and systems thinking, I was like, ah, that's that thing. But it was also quite familiar to me from just from my life and being with the, the elders in my in my home culture, and not just that, but with in groups of people as you move across the landscape, it's the kind of knowledge that's employed and that you're just inhabiting all the time, which we don't really, we never really had, we don't have meta language for these things. You know what I mean? So, you know, we don't have a word for things like psychology and all that sort of stuff. So <laughs> it's yeah. all of this isn't really anything you actually talk about. It's just something that you do. And I don't know, I just found myself in a unique position of being liminal enough in my life to be able to find ways to talk about these things that we've never talked about before, if that makes any sense at all. Absolutely. You know, to be able to do this strange alchemy in the in-between of things, of just being able to throw things together and see what interesting sort of got squoes out from there and, and then to be able to name that and, um, and talk through it. Through this lens that you've acquired, through experiencing a lot of different 
ways of knowing and various indigenous cultures and so forth. What do you see as the thing that sort of tipped the imbalance that then gave way to other forms of injustices, be it patriarchy or white supremacy later on? Like, what what do you see as the first thing that sort of like went off balance that then rippled off to everything else? <laughs> The first thing that caused me to notice it or for it to happen in in the world? In the world. In the world? Oh, well, it's been there from the start. It's been there from the Big Bang. There is that little seed that's actually, it's not a bad thing. It's just part of creation and it's there for a reason. It's there to make sure that the patterns of creation aren't just replicated the same way every time. So if you've got something that's replicating exactly the same every time over and over and over, what's going to happen to that thing? No matter how lovely it is, it's just going to stagnate. What you get is entropy. You'll get a silly, pretty, fat, lazy thing that just sort of falls apart and and just dies. That's what's going to happen with infinite replication without variation. So you kind of have this, I guess, almost what people call evil, this narcissistic desire to be greater than someone else or something else. Uh, and that's sort of, there's a seed of that in every single one of us. And it's there for a reason. It's there so that every now and then somebody will mess up and um, act on that thought or feeling and that it will create disproportionate conflict or something terrible will happen and something that will disrupt the system so much that it will change the pattern. So that as the pattern's replicated, it's replicated differently. And strangely enough, it's all those disruptions that end up making the pattern beautiful. The problem, though, is when it all takes over and you end up with um, when the the disruptor becomes the pattern, which is, I don't know if that's just uh, people who find themselves in troubling times always feel like they have no horizon in sight. There's no context and we're in it and we feel like it's forever and it's the end of the world and it's the apocalypse. But I think most of us feel like we're looking out at the world and we're seeing that most of the patterns of creation that we're inhabiting are the pattern breakers, are the, <laughs> the narcissistic, no good, choose your poison for metaphors. You know, is it, is it satanic? Is it demonic? Is it, you know, is it Marxist? Is it cultural Marxism? You know, is it like, I don't know, Nazis, is it the fascists? They're all coming for us and we've got to start punching them good and low. I guess everybody's looking and seeing that all around them. What do you think? Do you think that's just an extended moral panic that's that's infused everybody? Or are we um, like a big meta-moral panic, a collection of little moral panics that's just kind of metastasized throughout the system? Or are we <laughs> overreacting? What, what do you think? It, like, is it a real thing or are we just panicking a bit? I'm very much in my thought process where I'm trying to, like, make sense of it all. So I don't think I have a conclusion. But I'm trying to think about whether these injustices that we're facing are sort of inevitable as just part of how this all works. And if there is even a way to disrupt this pattern or if it's just going to keep replicating in other yeah. forms and other forms and other yeah. forms. I just, um, and then I'm not sure, like I feel the same way about it, but then I'm not sure if that's just part of my uh, indoctrination. 
And I don't know, is that part of the the narrative of liberalism is, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, you know, and that progress is like, yes, it's a hyper terrible things, but, but oh, just a little bit better each time. And, you know, this is the best one we've ever had. And, and this is actually taking us towards somewhere awesome where we'll all be, up, be able to go to Mars for a holiday. <laughs> There's kind of that feeling to it. So I don't know if that's the right story, that it's just like, oh, no, it, it keeps getting better and we're all gradually improving. Because I don't tend to go with the progress narrative. It's only because I can't trust it because it's just so obviously not true. Right. And that just puts into question what betterment and progress even means, because a major theme of this show is questioning the idea of progress as it is defined by Western ideologies, this idea that we're more advanced than we've ever been and we're wealthier than ever, which is a sign that we're on the right path. And so we just have to keep powering forward. So I wonder how you contextualize this with an understanding of closed loop and linear systems and how Western civilization might be holding on to a false sense of advancement as if it's outsmarted the laws of the land. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's tricky when you start using the language of loops because the the messaging isn't good in terms of what it does in what the words do in people's heads. You know, so I mean, so I, I talk about like you have to have like we live in open systems. At the same same time, there are closed loops. A closed loop means every every bit of waste produced within that system recycled back through either in that system or beyond that system, so that you know the entropy of this system becomes another system's lunch, and you know everything just transforms and changes form as it moves between systems or across the system in a sort of free exchange. So you've got that, and that's closed loops. So open system good, but closed loops bad is how we start to think about it. Because you've got these positive feedback loops, which sounds like a good thing because it has the word positive, and then you've got negative feedback loops. But negative feedback loops are actually good, I reckon. So a positive feedback loop is just like, I don't know, let's say you're a a leader of the free world and you don't have very much filters and you go on Twitter and the responses you get every time you tweet kind of rewards you, (laughs) you know, you're making money, you're getting attention, you're getting eyeballs, and then that just sort of bolsters you. And then some of your really bad ideas get reinforced by how many people like or respond to that tweet, and then off you go. That's a, a positive feedback loop, and that can only end in in one way, which is you know probably North Korea and a, a half a dozen other places get bombed or something. So um, it's reinforcing. A, yeah, that- a positive feedback loop is like that, that's cancer. You know, cancer's doing great things for cancer. It's just not a ver- doing great things for you. You know what I mean? So cancer metastasizing, that's because of positive feedback loops. And that's not good. So what has to happen is you need to have a balance. You have to have those some negative feedback loops that are sort of counteracting that a bit and that are kind of regulating to make sure it doesn't keep spreading and growing. You know, so a completely open system is probably not a good thing because that's just something that goes out of control. So it's no good to suddenly have this a lion out on the savannah who is without limits and who can grow a thousand times stronger and faster and then make babies a thousand times quicker. And then so all of a sudden it's just the entire Serengeti is just a big pile of dead lions. 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah, so there has to be those kind of limits. Look, and I guess it's about that balance thing. And it's everything sort of has a purpose. So it comes back to, yeah, even the those narcissists and the sort of stuff you regard as evil, it, it's got a place too. It's got that sort of tricky thing. Mm. But what we've always had is ways of enacting that ritually, you know, so in ritual combat and in ceremonies and stuff like that, so that the role of that bad penny, if you like, that's necessary in creation is sort of it's coming out in a rule-governed way to sort of limit the amount of damage that it can do in the community, you know. Right. So, you know, it's enacted in that way. But, yeah, you always have to make sure that you you've got a heap of balances and checks in place to stop that getting out of control. And the best way to do that is to make sure that you are um, you have enough people who are sort of living in small units, you know, even if there's thousands and thousands of people all together, it's like those have to be in small units where everybody within that unit is, is not able to be anonymous. You've got to be able to like everybody sees and knows what everybody else is doing right and that when it's human and distributed and it's our natural eyeballs on that and we're doing that out of love that works when it becomes digital surveillance and this panopticon it's a completely different thing it's Mm. probably not as good but i guess that if we want it to scale if we want village to scale then you probably need to um have a bit of a panopticon and Everybody with uh, lethal drones sort of hovering just out of sight, ready to um, <laughs> blast mm. you if you if you do something evil. Yeah. So there's always a cost to scale and growth. So yeah, the growth always has to growth off of something. So when we're talking about this endless economic growth that capitalism is predicated on, in opposition to this, there's been a degrowth movement. And I feel aligned with many of degrowth's intentions. My only question with it was why we continue to center this reductive form of understanding wealth as the basis of the economy and why we don't instead center the growth of what is beautiful, of what matters to us, like meaning, relationships, aliveness, biodiversity, and et cetera. I I think the wealthy understand that. Mm. They understand what actual wealth means. Like they understand that there needs to be closed loops within communities, like economies as community, and there needs to be perfect flows there. And every dollar needs to be spent a hundred times and just kept within that community and flowing around. And that that needs to be exchanging also with other systems and bloody blood. They, they really understand how a good, healthy community economy works, but they create that for themselves. And then they exclude everybody else from it. So within their own sort of business interests, within their own portfolio, they'll develop that diverse, beautiful free market economy. So, you know, and they'll make sure that if they're spending money over here, that that is actually subsidized from over here as well. Mm. And then when that dollar comes in, even if you have to pay these costs here, that's okay because you own the company that you have to pay the costs to for the cleanup or for the the coal, you know, delivery or whatever, because you also own those trucks. Do you see what I mean? So mm-hmm. they end up with this beautiful interdependent ecosystem of supply chains where they own everything along that. 
along that supply chain. They own everything around it. They also own the lobby groups that make sure they keep getting subsidized in the weaker parts of that um, supply chain. You know, it's just beautiful. It is a beautiful, excellent village economy going on in the portfolios of the extremely wealthy. And that's why it works so well. So um, for people to say that the village economy isn't working anywhere and that there's no proof that it works, well, well, you just look at the portfolios of the wealthy because they're making it happen beautifully. It's amazing. And it's really working for them. It's working for them so much that you can shut down the entire planet for the best part of a year and their wealth will double. That's Mm. pretty huge, eh? Yeah. And I guess the only thing is that they're not separated from the rest of the world because everything is interconnected. So that's the one problem. But as I was thinking more about this idea of growth, it made me wonder if growth in terms of material and energy is even possible inside of this closed system. And maybe it's just about transformations that can either grow in complexity and diversity and intimacy or otherwise trend towards simplicity and separation. So in other words, growth in this material sense isn't really possible inside of a closed loop system. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I know. It, and that that's just it. And it, it's, it's about... Um... <laughs> It's about an, having you know, a worldview and a set of assumptions, and I don't even mean assumptions like politicized ones or you know ideological ones or anything like that. Because yes, those exist, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about basic physics and everything else. Hmm. I'm talking about like before you even start measuring or theorizing or figuring out gravity, there's the assumptions that are behind what you need that for. <laughs> and where you go from there and then what you project onto that because it's it's a mess i mean it's a mess when you really start to look at all of that and what what growth is as opposed to increase so what is the difference between growth and increase so like for example from my cultural point of view increase you know in our relationship would be about just increasing the knowledge and the experience that we have between us so the two of us together in our connection, you know, in that relational space in between, increase would be about, you know, growing the complexity and the beauty of that relationship. Uh, that's it. Mm. And so nothing physical has been created there. But I guess from other people's point of view, it would be about reaching goals and milestones. So do we end up, I don't know, going on a first date? Do we end up engaged? Do we end up married? How many kids do we have? Do we have a joint bank account? Do we have separate bank accounts? Are we increasing the amount of money? You know what I mean? It's like all these deliverables and stuff like that in in relationships and different markers. I know this seems to be getting off the topic, but it's just the absolute impossible physics of growth when everything, the most important things, just basic building blocks of existence, you know, like energy and matter, you know, resources and power <laughs> the, right. the ways of naming these things the ways of using these things measuring them um, valuing them creating value out of them there are all these weird like illusions all these value propositions that are illusory and just go against the reality the basic physics of what is and it's what we keep finding over and over and it's it's very difficult to explain <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, you look at energy, I don't know. So, so just the biomass on the planet, just the living things, which is a very tiny skin over, over a very large planet. It's just a tiny amount. Life itself 
is so powerful and has so much power that it's constantly the amount of energy that's being produced just by the biomass on the planet, even even after it's been reduced by bloody 60% over the last 40 years, the amount of energy it's producing is more than the sun produces in, in the same amount of time. Mm. So, you know, massive, massive burning star, <laughs> tiny little green film around a rock. There's, there's more energy produced by us. And, and that is us. We are what they've started to call nature. We are part of the biomass of this planet. It, it, is, it is amazing. There's, there's, no more be- there's no better energy return on investment. There's no better ROI than life, mm. than biology, within an amazing complex dynamic system that is constantly increasing in its complexity and, and what it can do. It's, it's incredible. So just the idea of mapping an idea of growth on top of that, that it's like, well, we open those closed loops and we take from here in a way that kills that place and we dump the toxic outputs from that over there in a way that kills that other place and we expand our centre over here out larger real estate. You know what I mean? And just constantly having to rob Peter to pay Paul but in an algorithm where it can't be paid back and that each time you have to take a little bit more and a little bit more under the illusion that L curves can go forever and they just really can't. Yeah. I don't know. They're still operating like in a universe that has no exponential function. The, the illusions were created before people understood the exponential function as well. And I don't know. I guess they thought they could just rob Peter to pay Paul forever and um, you run out of people to pay your bills for you. You run out of places to outsource the debt from this bad physics of this curse, this global curse and illusion of infinite growth. And it's more than just, oh, we've got to have a degrowth economic model. You know, oh, what if we made, you know, made the externalities in, in accounting, right? What if we actually made another column for them? So that the river, right, the river's got human rights because the river's a, a human being too. It's like, yeah, all right, man, but it's, that's just another illusion. That's a, <laughs> it's like the um, diversity and inclusion, but in the same paradigm. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Everything they think they can just because, I don't know, because they can do number tricks and word tricks to sort of get around having to pay the piper on this and that. And they think that's real then. They think the pollution, I mean, if they can get out of paying the fine for the pollution or if they can get out of anybody seeing all the cancer or they can call, say all, of the can- all that cancer from the lead over there that we dumped there and the mercury that was actually caused by something else, then that's real then. So they, they think that if they can say the thing, they like put the number on it and put the word on it or put the name on it, give it a new name, then, then that is somehow true. The illusion becomes the truth. And so that just goes around to everything. And it's not just the rich. Everybody's doing it now. We just name things something else. And then the damage isn't being done anymore. Mm. You know, so we have um, in Australia, we name the practice of, of, of taking Aboriginal children from the families in, in, in massive numbers, just 
stealing Aboriginal children from the families, the government, and putting them in state care or with non-Aboriginal families with the openly stated goal from right from the start of assimilating and just basically ethnociding you know, the entire Aboriginal culture. That became apparent to everybody that that was happening and that it was wrong. So they named it the Stolen Generations and they did this kind of truth-telling thing about it and then the government actually delivered an apology for it and it was like, okay, we apologise for that thing that was happening in the past. Now we can all move on collectively as a nation and as a people. So they had that lovely symbolic thing, that illusion there. But the fact was and still remains, like right now and at the time of the apology, there are more Aboriginal children being taken right now and even when the apology was being delivered than at any, any other point in Australia's history. But by naming it as a historical thing that sort of evil people who have been dead for 100 years did, like a long time ago, you've sort of outsourced the requirement, the accountability. You've outsourced the requirement to act to address the problem by actually laying it at the feet of people who are dead a long time ago and say, well, and, and I'm being really generous now and, and saying sorry for the, the actions of my ancestors who I actually inherited all the wealth from, the wealth that was built on the sort of theft of land and people and children and everything else, and I'm going to keep that, And but I'm terribly sorry about that thing that happened in the past, and I'm going to keep doing it now because we need to be able to keep doing that because we need to keep a caste system in place because you can't have a growth-based economy without a caste system. That's the only way you can make sure that there's more demand than supply. You know, we need to keep zone, be, being able to zone an underclass, a permanent underclass. We need to be able to keep zoning them to the other side of the tracks so that the land on this side of the tracks can continue to grow in value. We need to keep sending more and more people there. Uh, we need to keep everything kind of mixed up and, <laughs> and awful, you know, so we're going to need to keep arresting, you know, men mostly from your culture over here we're going to need to keep arresting them and locking them up for almost nothing and keeping them in that unless unless they're doing drug stuff if they're doing drug stuff it's just catch and release immediately because it's actually helpful to the caste system and to the growth-based economic model if we've got more and more aboriginal people running around in your community off their head on drugs and like beating people up and so that you're you're experiencing more and more intolerable life circumstances because then it's easy to move you on when we need to move you on because either we need to gentrify that part of the town or if you're out of the town and you're remote then we're going to need to dig up those minerals that are under you because the only thing that's keeping Australia afloat and the only thing that has for the last 50 years has been demand from China for all of these resources that you've got under the ground and that's the only thing that's going to get you through the global depression that's happening now because well, and that global depression's here, as with the global financial crisis before, because too many people robbing Peter to pay Paul until Peter's dead, and then there's no one left to pay Paul. Uh, Paul's angry, and then, you know, you find out there's, there's a lot more to it than that, and the mm -hmm. whole thing starts to collapse. But we need to increase our volume of ore again, and unfortunately, Aboriginal land and communities are sitting right on top of that ore, so we're going to need to ramp things up and we're going to need to kill lots of you. Uh, we're going to have to continue ramping up the number of kids. You, you see where it's I – mean, I'm just basically barking around the edges of a very complex system here to, to give you an idea of 
just how intractably complicated it is and how horrifying it is to everybody on the ground to whom all this entropy is being outsourced. I mean, there are the privileged people in the world who are still able to enjoy some safety, some security, some sanitary living conditions, all that sort of stuff. You know, they, they're really feeling the pinch. They're like they're feeling their world shrinking because those safe spaces are, um, they're becoming harder and harder to maintain. It's becoming harder and harder to outsource all of the entropy, to outsource all of the externalities. Man, some of those externalities are becoming internal because there's no external to outsource it to anymore. It, it's coming home. Those people you're displacing, it's like more and more frequently they're coming down the street in larger numbers in your suburb than the private security bloody company that is, the polices your streets and is allowed to use lethal force it, it, more than they can handle. They're having a lot more trouble stopping them at the gates of your gated community. And every now and then one will get through and somebody will take a crap in your rose bushes and, and you're trying to figure out how you make sense of that. And that guy might then walk across the driveway and punch your neighbor right in your face, right in their face. And, and your neighbor has never been punched in the face before. She's 60 years old and she's never, ever been punched in the face. That's the kind of unspeakable privilege we're talking about here. <laughs> There's a whole heap of people who've been living in such a bubble that nobody's ever hit them before. And I don't know, for most of the people in the world, in the global community that I belong to, which is, you know, people who are not living in that in that little techno bubble, that safe bubble, that bubble of privilege. It's like it's almost unthinkable. How, I, I can't imagine what my life would be without frequent violence being done to my face throughout most of my life to date. I, I, I just I can't imagine what a year would look like without getting hit in the face. H how how does that work? Right. <laughs> you know. So it's just there are. So many people who are starting to see the barbarians are not just at the gates now. Quite a few of them have breached the walls. And there's rumors that, oh, on the east side, they're coming through. All the orcs are coming. Uh, they don't. And I don't know. People are starting to panic a little bit. You know, it's like when you're emptying the water out of a fish tank. And, you know, as the level gets lower and lower, you start to see the fish. They're getting a bit, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're swimming more and more busily. You know, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Look, we've still got the little, I don't know, pirate treasure box down here with the bubbles coming out. It's all going to be fine. Oh, my God, it's getting lower. You know, the world is shrinking. So, you know, uh, <laughs> it's just, um, yeah, the more, I mean, the growth has been, economic growth has been exponential. There's never been more money, more wealth on the planet than there is right now. Like over the last year, that's just, it's, it's just exploded the amount of wealth there is in the world. But it's also at the same time been a massive wealth transfer and not just of the money because there's had to be a hell of a lot more extracted just to make that work. So we're talking about the burning of so many resources to make that happen. We're talking about just wholesale destruction of lands and places and peoples and communities it's been horrendous you know like I, I think nobody knows yet about the full extent of the horrors that have been committed on the world 
over the last year, year, year and a half. Yeah. But it's just been what we've experienced growth, I tell you. Economic growth, the, the economy globally of this Anglosphere, of this liberal system, it's never been healthier. It's a very healthy economy right now. It's very, very strong. Growth is very, very good. That just doesn't translate as anybody being able to survive. But the economy yeah. is doing very well. As you say also, it's not just the people in power that are playing into the perception of change. A lot of people want to be heard. We want our hot takes to be shared. We want other people to agree with us. We police other people's language to reflect our worldviews. And all of this in the grand scheme of things is more so about changing people's views while little actually is being changed. So I wonder if this is all reflective of what's called conquer and divide as a strategy deployed by those in power, where they might fuel these surface level fights for everyday people over diversity to prevent us from finding common ground or leveraging our diversity on the real changes that need to be made. And also you speak to the importance of diversity of thought, but is a level of agreement necessary to, to be able to co-create tangible changes so we're not mm. stuck in gridlock? Well, they... They have us fighting these culture wars. And look, it's, yes, everything that you've just said, it's it's a good divide and conquer strategy for a start, but I think that's just a um, that's just a good byproduct. It also, it gives people the illusion that they're living in a democracy and that their opinion or the, you know, the amount of people who have that same opinion or whatever, or I don't know, the majority opinion, the ma- minority opinion, whatever percentage of whatever opinions you can think of matter at all and remotely affect the outcome of anything in this world. No, okay, so tell me who you can vote for for a de- degrowth economy. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, you, you can vote for plenty of people who are like, I am passionate about climate change and we will be taking measures for climate change. And you're like, yes, I'm voting for them. They are green. And then there's other people over here who are like, you know, oh, climate change isn't real. And if it is, then it doesn't even matter anyway. And, you know, what are you, bloody nanny state, bloody trying to stop climate change, which, you know, if, if, if everybody's going to be consumed by a massive fireball, then it's just because they, I don't know, they, they, they didn't look after their business well enough so that they could have a, an underground bunker and it's their own fault. Uh, and, and, oh, we're not going to vote. That's terrible that he thinks that. Well, we've got to change his, you know, we've got to change, we've got to defeat anyone that's following that. We've got to defeat them because they're all thinking the wrong way. Meanwhile, we've lost the message. What's, what's the idea again? Degrowth? Oh, yeah. That, you can't vote for that. You can't vote for anything that actually would change anything. You can't change anything that would see all of these, the inequalities, the economic destruction, blah, de blah. These things are caused by actual structural inequalities. 
liberalism co-opts every single term, even to the point where they've taken the term structural inequality and they've got everybody thinking structural inequality means the aggregate of opinions or lack of awareness or bigotry, the aggregate of those opinions of the people in the institutions, that that's what the structural inequality is or structural racism or structural sexism or structural misogyny. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. And so the, the, the only solution can be to change people's minds. That's all we get to do is to fight for the awareness and the opinions of each other. And we fight each other for that in the belief that it's the aggregate of, you know, the majority of the opinions that forms the decisions for how the world is going to be managed, how the world will be run. But that is not what decides those things at all. So we're stuck with this false idea of what structural inequality is and what structural power is and no idea of how those relations work. And all we're allowed to really talk about changing or affect changing is just little bits and pieces of cultural change. And But we're not even, I don't know, we even argue about what to call that. So you've got, uh, if you're in the alt-right or whatever, they want to call that. Now, I don't even know what they're called because they don't call themselves that. And I'm not even sure the left calls them that anymore. Who knows? There's so many factions. But if you're in that kind of sphere, then you're referring to everything that I just said as cultural Marxism. You're calling it cultural Marxism. Um, you know, if you're somewhere else, you're calling it something else. So even the, even the critique is co-opted. The critique of the critique is co-opted and it's all <laughs> twisted around and like really disingenuously feeding back, feeding back all power to the center and spraying out entropy all over the place, uh, just outsourced to anywhere that's left. This kind of growing, growing, like, I don't know. It used to be that it was only about 20% or 30%, you know, at the bottom of the caste system in most places in the world, we're really doing it tough. But that's increasing all the time. I'd say it's more like the bottom 50% now of people who are really, really doing it tough. And I don't know, the next half of the top half is not doing doing very well either. <laughs> right. You know, and even the people who are in the sort of, uh, I don't know, the lower, the lower half of the top 10%, of people in the world in terms of privilege and quality of life and access to resources, etc. It's starting to, they're not very happy. It's starting to get really hard that they're finding that, you know, so in your country right now, I'm assuming you're in the United States, is that? Yes. Okay. Thank God. I wasn't sure if it was being really racist and you're from Canada <laughs> or something. I can never tell. Anyway, that's that, uh, that, oh, they're really starting to do it tough even in that top 10% of privileged people, you know, they're starting to struggle and starting to realize that, wow, okay, so we're a couple with no kids and we're both on 150K plus a year and we have no hope at all with current real estate prices of ever, ever owning our own home in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's in, they're in the top 10%, even just in America, not even in the global sort of <laughs> sense of things. And so that pinch is getting, it's getting squoze and squoze. I heard the term the other way, other day, I'm, I'm downward, downwardly mobile. 
Mm. Um, downward, down the downwardly mobile privileged. That's going on everywhere. You know, it's people are starting to see that it's oh, it's not coming back. We might be able to make a few spikes where things will feel better for a minute, but it will just be an illusion. You know, there's no high grade copper ore left to mine in the world. And they're going to have to, at the next, because they have to replace all the energy infrastructure, like, you know, all the wires that carry your power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have to replace that every 30 years, like a lot of it. And there's not enough copper left right now in the ground to do the next one. So they're probably going to have to switch to aluminium, which is really annoying because all of my land, my traditional land and all of my community is sitting right on the top of bauxite. So that means that all my land and, and all my community is going to have to be destroyed <laughs> in the next 10 years because in, in order to try and, you know, cobble together some kind of metal that, that's almost as good a conductor as copper is. And that's going to have to happen just to kick the can down the road for another three decades, just in terms of moving that energy along. And that energy is not changing. They're not going to, like, stop burning coal and make it happen. They can go gas. I will call it natural gas. Everything's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just they're just going to keep moving things around because there is no thing to replace it with to make this illusion work. There's nothing else. You can you can keep just putting things in place to keep the illusion alive, but there's nothing you can do to make it real. There is no way to make infinite clean. You can't burn, produce energy out of nothing to power a life that <laughs> that does all of the things that it's currently doing. Right. Which is not a life anyway. And nobody wants it. You know, people want to be connected. They want to be in family and they want to be in their habitat. They need to be on the land and that's it. So I guess my question is how do we navigate that language is often being weaponized or co opted, but at the same time, it is a powerful tool of communication to help people better make sense of the world. But, you know, in this sort of culture war that is going on, it's really hard to properly communicate with people with nuance. So, for example, I often say things that go against dominant narratives, like I critique science's limitations. I have a lot of critiques like you on so-called green energy. And some people will respond by saying that I'm using fossil fuel industry talking points or I've also critiqued racial frameworks as a limiting way to understand Asians and yeah. had people tell me what you're saying sounds like when racist people say, I don't see race without actually mm. addressing my critiques. And so all of this plays into culture wars where it's often so simplified into just binaries of people in this faction against that one. And I know you, for example, also raised the point that black and white is an insufficient paradigm to understanding the indigenous experience. You say it's difficult to name the ripples and patterns of global power systems when we're limited by 19th century language around race and colonialism. So how do we at the same time, you know, recognize that language is important so we can, for example, you can share that it's much more nuanced today than black and white, but at the same time, it's constantly being co-opted and watered down. In this system of liberalism, and I think that's about as I don't know. You know what I mean when I say liberalism, uh, global liberalism. You know the system that's replicated all over that makes the anglosphere work. 
that you know this roads foundation has, has spent a century or so putting in place and making sure it's all set up and ready to roll that system the one where you know when you go to a place you know you will find a hospital a post office a a local council a city council you will find a court you, you will find there will be all these things there these institutions you will find a school and that everywhere you go in the world you will find that or you will find a place that's about to lose its capacity to be a people or a place um and it, it's just you know becoming a, a resource sink for other places that have those things basically let's just call it liberalism that thing that net that's around the world it it anything that you do or say within that the minute you give it a name it's finished the minute you give it a brand it's finished it's it's co-opted and i, I just I believe in trying not to name things, mm. trying not, not to brand them. You know, so if you have a critique and, and suddenly you call that critique something, that becomes the such and such, I don't know, hypothesis or it's finished. <laughs> I think you've said this about emergence, right? Yeah, you're even talking about sets of talking points that are appropriate for different group identities. You know, So even a point or a, a way of making a point, it's like, oh, no, that's a that's that's what those people over there use on their platform and we're actually deplatforming that platform so <laughs> we don't talk like that or mention that you know <laughs> there's just it, everything's just brand wars and as soon as something has a name it will become part of somebody's consumer choice and you know somebody will win the franchise over that thing and that'll be in that group i don't know i try to avoid naming anything and I try to avoid making too much sense. Like I try and say things a bit differently every time and to mix it up and I don't know, make it unusual. Uh, I try to, I try to break up and make sure there's no sound bites mm. that are usable. Like I'll just put stupid, like I'll swear like quite frequently <laughs> here and there and I'll just kind of break things up a little bit. Uh, I'll mix them up so that half of the point is in this part. And then about a minute later, I'll make the other half of the point so that you can't sort of put it together I, I i do that quite deliberately because I, I don't want any of any of the things i'm thinking or working on to become an ideology or a brand or something that people can use and name because i have seen that happen before with a few things i've done mm. people have sort of grabbed it and then it's become their their thing i, I think you you've got to avoid that packaging and repackaging of ideas um, and you've got to let these things be you know free range Look, there's another brand, Wild, another brand, <laughs> Decentralized, another brand. Oh, oh, what is it? Uh, distributed, there's another brand. I mean, you're immediately, if you hear the word decentralized, then you're going, okay, that's that's libertarian. You know, uh, distributed, oh, that's more sort of left libertarian. You know, it's just, it, it, off we go. It's just, there's no word that, <laughs> you know what I mean, that isn't owned. There's almost like a cultural IPR on, on half the language. So you say in guiding our path forward, Westernization wants to find one story, the scientific method, the one economic system. All you can do is foster the conditions for emergence. And I know you think that word also has been 
probably co-opted, but yeah. you you go on to say that too and allow it to emerge and just behave with integrity. The minute you have an idea and you think this is an important idea and that everyone should be doing this, as soon as you do that, you've made an ideology and you're stuffed. End quote. Yeah. So given that I know a lot of what you talk about in terms of indigenous thinking is really relationships with place and the land, I wonder if the political and economic systems we take on everywhere also should be tied to their landscapes, as in there shouldn't be one sort of political ideology that works everywhere. And social systems of people living in, for example, a rainforest should look different than people living in a desert or the Arctic or grasslands, because the law of the land and the elements and diversity everywhere are different. So I don't know what your thoughts are on just social organizing in a way that is most in alignment with the law of the land would look like. Yeah. Well, well, that, that that's just the thing. I mean, if you're planning anything, you, you sort of need to make sure that uh, if you want something to be anti-fragile, it has to be diverse, but actually truly diverse. You know, so for example, um, we've been wanting to get married here for years and you know, money prevented us from doing it for a long time. Now we've got enough money to do it, but for the last year and a half, we haven't been able to do it because of the COVID thing. So, what we've done is rethought idea our idea of what a wedding would be. So we thought, well, how would we do a distributed wedding? How would? Because we- <laughs> here's the thing: I mean, every time you plan, you know, something because we all have like lots of family in lots of different places. So every time you plan something, you're tossing a coin that there won't be a lockdown in well for a start your town and like a significant number of the other towns where all your guests are coming from you know or that state or there there won't be restrictions across the border or something like that and you're really you're tossing the coin and it's 50 50 with any date you you might choose in fact it's probably worse odds than that because you've got all of your chances in one basket so we thought well how do we change that and so we decided to do like a progressive dinner model you know where you like, uh, you ever had one of those, I've never actually done it, but I've seen it on movies and TV and stuff. Like mm-hmm. people, um, they'll have like the first course at one people's house and then mm-hmm. they'll go and do the sec- next course at someone else's house. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're thinking um, we might do it like that. So instead of trying to get all the guests to come to our central location, uh, we'll just combine the whole wedding thing with the honeymoon thing and we'll just travel around and visit everybody. And just celebrate our marriage with our loved ones all over in whatever way is appropriate in that local context of how they feel, you know, they'd like to do that. Now, the the chances are that up to two or three of those locations will end up being inaccessible. And there is there is also a, I don't know, about a one in ten chance that we won't be able to travel on that date. But we've Suddenly, because we've distributed the event across a lot of different places, we've decreased the odds of the entire event itself being being uh, destroyed or being cancelled. So that's how we've made an anti-fragile event, and that's how we've applied our indigenous logic to make you know an indigenous wedding. Mm-hmm. And people would say, "Well, what's it, what's an indigenous wedding? What do you uh, got like uh, emu feather veil?" Have you got like a, I don't know, a bush tucker wedding cake? You know, is the bride going to like, is the father going to give her away and then throw a boomerang or what's what's indigenous about it? And it's it's none of those things. 
it's in understanding the way systems work and the way relationships work and <laughs> understanding the way you have to build the structures of anything that you want to be sustainable over deep time. And so we have to build the structure of our relationships and of this ceremony. We have to build that based on the old ceremony model, which um, strangely enough was very much like that. Mm. Of when you travel for ceremony over over great distances with different uh, different peoples, you know the important ceremonies. So yeah, so that's what our uh, black wedding is going to look like. So the other thing is, I've been playing in my mind these different scenarios of what revolutionary change from where we are today could look like because we do have centralized power in control right now. Yeah. So even as we acknowledge our need for diversity in thought and ideology and approaches and how we organize ourselves, do you think that it will still take centralized people's movements to be able to dismantle the congregated global powers of today to then create space for decentralized organizing to take place? Or would any sort of unified effort to topple power end up just replicating the pattern yeah. again? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It, it's it's funny because, I don't know, The or there's it, it seems to me there's two BLMs. There's the one that, you know, has, I don't know, um, organizational status and accepts donations. <laughs> you know that one? And branded. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, a, a lot of your grassroots uh, community people would, would sort of say then they're, they're not getting a lot done. Mm-hmm. And then there are there were, you know, particularly in the beginning, and it's hard to tell because they don't get reported on much now. I mean, actual grassroots black community movements who are getting a lot done with no funding and with, with, with nothing else. Um, no particular leadership, no big figurehead, you know, who's being the great leader or anything like that. They're just getting it done on the ground. Unfortunately, that also got co-opted as well. So that meant, that meant there's a really big open door and that any bloody spoiled white anarchist from Portland to, could sort of run out in the street and, you know, drop a mushroom or two and set a police car on fire like a dickhead. I mean, <laughs> it, it meant that, you know, that happens as well. So I don't know about that now, the complete anarchy side of things. All I do know is that the only the only actual protest that or, or movement I think that ever actually really worked, and I know a lot of people will get pissed off about that, but, you know, stuff them. The, the only one that ever actually worked, with, I think, was um, – was Occupy, just because there were no leaders and, and, and the same things that it was criticised for was what made it strong and, and which is what had it making lasting change. I mean, it's still, you know, people are still producing things today out of what they learned out of Occupy. You know, there were um, genuine dialogical distributed sort of models of governance coming up. Uh, there were ways of doing parliament that were genuinely you know, productive, generative, and distributed. All of these models came up like quite organically within that movement, and it was pretty bloody good. That's where they failed because they had no unified objectives and goals. They couldn't even <laughs> tell you what they were protesting about. Not one of them. And who was their representative that we can speak to? Yeah, mm-hmm. no, because you're supposed to have a prepackaged solution and a leader because that's the liberal model. That's why I keep saying this is liberalism we're under. Liberalism, if you want to have an idea or a bloody anything, a movement, you're not allowed to have anything remotely organized unless it's organized around a mission statement, a set of KPIs and a, and a, and a boss. You know, you have to have a leadership structure in place and you have to have, you know, deliverables 
you know, mm. with a clear-cut solution that's, you know, 10-point plan of dot points and all that. It's just like, ah, God. Anyway, yeah, you, we're not going to get there like that because that's more of the same. Right. But then at the same time, like the the – the the more white disorganized parts of the Black Lives Matter movement, <laughs> if I can say that, we're, we're not that either. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because people like everybody keeps thinking that it's a choice between authoritarianism at one end and complete chaos and bloodshed at the other, and that you've got to choose some point on the continuum. Like that's the that straight line there. That's the only possible selection of ways of human organization that's come up over the last two million years and i'm talking two million years because you know the oldest stone tools made like like actually flint napping to make you know scrapers and axes and stuff like that that's like 1.75 million years ago it's like it's been a long time that we've been thinking stuff through and living in groups and i'm sure <laughs> like well i know there's more than just you know, one straight line between fascism and bloody and and just death and destruction and blood in the streets. There's 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 somewhere between like you know absolute imposed top down order, and you know bottom up everybody murdering each other, <laughs> anarchy. I know there's more than that. Yeah, and even beyond because uh, that's line. also that the the two stories of of progress and bloody primitivism are also mapped onto that continuum. Mm -hmm. And I know that's bullshit because I know that that's not what Paleolithic life is or was like and i say is because you know we still have our communities that that still follow the patterns uh, of life that's been lived for many tens of thousands of years outside of this civilized bloody snake eating its tail ridiculosity of of, of bloody infinite growth illusion um yeah. Yeah. I think it all goes back to relationships and networks of support. So as we're closing off our conversation before we go into our lightning rounds, I want to bring up something that you shared before. You said how you and various Indigenous scholars have agreed that if we can't bring non-Indigenous peoples back in relation with the land, then we're probably all going to die. And this clarified for me when you say that Indigenous thinking can save the world. That's not one monolithic way of thinking. It's just really rooted yeah. in relationships to place. So on this note, what final thoughts would you like to share? And in light of this very honest conclusion, what are your calls to action for our listeners? Mm. It's hard because, I mean, once again, the most uh, damaged people on the planet are going to have to set aside their IOUs going to have to set aside any kind of justice or hope for justice or karma or anything else and carry the load for another thousand years to keep everything alive. And, and it's going to be hard and it's hard just to forgive and then hand over all this wealth of knowledge and relationship and, and everything else and just hand that over to the people who are still holding the capital from the last great heist and are not going to give it up or share it anyway. Mm. And it's like, well, if we want us all to live, we're going to have to do that. And it's just like, ah, uh, I don't know. The people always throw up that Sophie's Choice thing like it's a this or that choice. It's not. There is a C there. It's like, no, you kill us all and we'll all die together, you bastard, and we're going to do it while all of us are jumping you and trying to scratch your eyeballs out. Yeah, we're going to leave a mark on you, motherfucker. You're going to shoot us. And you're going to shoot us all and we're going to mark you up and maim you up real bad in the process. 
that's the that's the choice three, you know, <laughs> the choice number C. And um, I don't know, we could do that too. Or we could do the cheek turning thing and probably, I don't know, the only way that's going to save the entire planet is to um, bring everybody back under the law of the land and be very generous with our social systems and, and open them up and bring everybody back in and give them a big couple of centuries workshop in how to come back and that's going to be really hard because at the same time those people are going to be trying to extract from that corrupt that and and everything else right <laughs> well, i think if anyone's capable of navigating through that and you know we are as indigenous peoples and marginalized peoples and the impoverished peoples the people who still have a demotic culture that's evolving from something real a real life of cause and effect a real life that knows what it is to be punched in the face, something that's still responding to actual physics mm-hmm. <laughs> and an actual lived reality. But everybody will be under that soon. And the only way it'll work is going to be if we have that diversity. So each bioregion is responding to the unique spirit and entities of place there to build a patterning of, of relation there and eco- an economy, a governance structure, and then syndicating that with all the other bioregions around and sort of, you know, that sort of syndicating out. You have to have that um, that syndicated diversity, that um, that balance, that constant tension and balance between autonomy and collectivity. It's a tricky one to do. Yeah. <laughs> but it's doable. It's, it's scalable if it's syndicated. It's the only way for it to be scalable. Um, it's not scalable if it's monolithic which I, I think that's what most people mean by scale now. But me, when I say scale, the first thing I think of is, is, is that thing that comes off a fish. Mm. <laughs> but that's just me. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been very profound for you? Um, anything by Vandana Shiva is, is worth looking at. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I try not to get too motivated or inspired. <laughs> and I tell myself that um, depression is very, is very effective. Depression is a superpower. Look at all the greatest uh, the people who have achieved the greatest things in history, and they were all depressives. Look them up. Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln, bloody everybody. Yeah. Uh, Winston Churchill. Like it, it, From whatever brand of politics you've got, look, look at your heroes, and you'll find out that they all had severe depression. It's a superpower. It helps you get stuff done. And I don't know if hope is the right word for you, but what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? that we might have a chance mm. of breaking this destructive pattern we're in. Just that it's all fine anyway and that the, the planet will be fine. 
I have that basic, you know, irrational idea and belief that, oh, you know, I'd like things to be good for my children. Mm. Like for some reason I have a right or they have a right because they're children to some kind of future. I mean, that's kind of irrational because uh, I don't I don't have that same feeling for myself that, that I have deserve any kind of future and I, I don't think most grown people do. They only kind of want that for their children. I don't know. I, I don't really find any particular hope about the future or think that we particularly deserve to be doing this or that. I know that we have a role as a custodial species and that that's our ecological niche and that, you know, we've got a while to try and get back into that niche and, and sort things out. And I guess if we don't do that, then I don't know, everything that is now will die and then there'll be something else after that. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support the show starting from $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Without a media network or marketing agency behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Karma by Sarah Kinsley. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode.